Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Tuparev and ExpressVPN. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to become a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, Jason. We're back. There's lots of stuff going on. Yeah. I've been seeing you around a lot. I know you're, um, you, you shaved part of your facial hair off That's because true. it's it's September and it's not just sort of torture Stephen by making him shave his facial hair partially off. It's also a very important month. That's right. Every September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And so uh, every year, Relay FM takes some time to talk about the work and mission of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Uh, we're coming off, as we record this, the podcastathon, which is like a live six-hour it's kind of like a variety telethon show, but with nerdy yeah. people and nerdy content. Uh, so we're, we're just coming off that. And uh, thanks to the generosity of the Relay audience and family, we have uh, just destroyed our goal for the month, which was $315,000. Uh, but we're going to keep going. We're committed to this all month, and St. Jude is committed to ridding the world of childhood cancer. So we're going to uh, keep on at this. So if you want to donate, and you totally should, it mm-hmm. is org slash relay. Yeah, definitely do it. We're uh, we're raising money all month. You Just because the podcast-a-thon is over, it doesn't mean that we're not still raising money all month. It's still September. Please donate. Uh, should we get to our pre-flight checklist? Let's do it. I've got a jam-packed show. There's a bunch of stuff that didn't even make it into the prefect uh, list this this time because there's so much going on. It's uh, out of control, really. I'll start with a uh, a, a new uh, a new player in space, maybe a new uh, rocket. I wanted to mention. There's so many of these small companies, like Rocket Lab. We're going to mention later. Um, this is a company called Astra. It's a nice Latin for star, um, and they are getting into this business. They're based in Alameda here in the Bay Area, which is pretty cool. And they were uh, doing the first of what they say are three orbital test launches uh, from Alaska. Interesting. So, sort of like our version of the of the uh, Rocket Lab New Zealand launch is mm-hmm. the Alaska yeah. launch site. <laughs> uh, good to do it out there where there are no people because you're doing rocket tests and they may not work. And this this rocket was called Rocket Three Point One, which I really like. I preferred Rocket Ninety Five. Oh, well, nice Windows joke. Rock, rocket XP. <laughs> um, rocket Three Point One. Mm, it, it worked about as well as Windows Three Point One. Actually, it. Um, it had a blue screen of death, no, but it did have an error in its first stage. It launched September 12th. There was an error in the first stage, and actually, the, the unlike Windows uh, 3.1, the computer did what it needed to do and aborted the launch. So there's actually video that somebody took of it, and it goes up, and then all of a sudden, the rocket just kind of cuts out. It's easy to interpret that video as saying, oh, whoops, the rocket stopped, but that's not actually what happened. The They detected an anomaly in the first stage. And the computer shut down the rocket at that point. But of course, what goes up must come down. And so the rocket then sort of tumbles and over end for a while, um, comes back down and then uh, goes boom when it hits the ground. But that's okay. This is all part of the learning process. Rocket 3.2, the upgrade, is ready to go. Uh, they'll figure out what went wrong and they'll get Rocket 3.2. Uh, and they plan three total, so there's also a Rocket 3.3 that's going to exist. And it's just another, this is a, essentially it's a Bay Area tech startup for rockets. Uh, so Astra uh, from Alameda, uh, we'll, we'll keep our eye on Astra. You know, it was cool in the sort of hours after this, both Elon Musk and Peter Beck uh, chimed in, kind of encouraging them to say, hey, look, yep. you know, we went through this too. Uh, and I like that, that they sort of... I spoke to the startup out of their experience of having lots of rockets fail. Yeah, that's going to happen, right? So, so don't. I, I I like that too. Elon Musk was like, I mean, SpaceX has a video on their YouTube channel of all of the explosions mm-hmm. of SpaceX stuff. So it happens. So uh, anyway, good luck to Astra. Uh, got a little Arecibo update for you, Jason. Oh, nice. It's good. It's good stuff. Uh, so we spoke last time how. The observatory had suffered damage. Uh, some cables broke and tore the the dish pretty badly. Uh, this was while they were still repairing and recovering from previous issues uh, due to weather. So uh, it's been a hard time for that team, uh, but they are hard at work. Uh, they've had uh, experts uh, come in, structural engineers, 
cable fabrication people, which I guess is a, it's probably a whole industry, right, that we just don't know about. But there's a whole industry of people who make cables like this, I'm sure. And they're doing, they've basically made lots of measurements, made lots of observations, and they're moving into computer-based structural analysis to see what failed, what they can do to repair it and strengthen it so it doesn't happen again. So uh, I think we're going to keep covering this because this is an observatory we both just have a fondness for, and it's an sure. important one. Uh, but they are uh, seemingly at this point, they're not content to let this go. And so I think they're going to push as hard as they can to see what it will take to get this back up and running, which is fantastic. Yeah. The message right now is that they're working on it and they have to they have to figure out, like you said, what needs to be done. But I love that they're they're on it. They got the experts in there. They're uh, they're doing the analysis and we'll see where we go from here. But everybody, I think, recognizes the importance of Arecibo. I have a, I have some follow up. Stephen. Ooh. Yes, this is from listener Dave, who provided some, I'm just going to say, extremely sarcastic feedback about our last episode. Uh, listener Dave uh, shares our concern about the future of the International Space Station, but uh, pointed us to what's going on with a company called Axiom Space, and I think it's a fair point. So without the sarcasm, I'm going to point out the, some things that Listener Dave sent our way. So NASA does indeed have a program. We talked last time about the ISS and how long is funding going to go, and are commercial sources going to be able to uh, replace the funding of the ISS, and does it really have a future after all that's been invested in it? There is a program that is designed to transition ISS to commercial space. Uh, it's called the Next Space Technologies for Exploration Partnerships, or Next Step. We, that's a name that we both know. I know, right? Is there a black key, cube involved in some way? <laughs> um, the, uh, so Axiom Space, which is based in Houston, they have a bunch of space veterans, including um, a guy who was the program manager for the ISS for a decade. They want to contract early this year to develop a commercial module. This is actually, they basically NASA put out uh, an RFP on who wants to build a commercial thing and attach it to this open docking port that we have on the Harmony module. And Axiom won that, that deal and one access to that. And they say they will launch their first module out of a multi-module design that they're working on in the second half of 2024. They've signed a deal with an aerospace company to build the modules. They've cut a deal uh, also earlier this year with SpaceX uh, to initially transport an astronaut and three paying passengers to the ISS. I think we may have covered that on a previous show, the idea of uh, a company that's sort of selling uh, three paying passengers. Unclear if this is space tourism per se, or if it's space... Uh, commercial space research, which might be a possibility, because that seems to be a thing that they're that they're really focusing on with Axiom. Is there's the I'm going to space, I can't believe it aspect, but there's also the um, companies sending people to do their own work in space as a possibility here. Not like a work from home thing, you know, but more like I'm going to run this experiment here in this commercial module. You could, it would be the world's most expensive WeWork, but you could do that. <laughs> Cheryl is working from from uh, from space today. <laughs> WFS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know they're in space because the little astronaut emoji is their Slack status. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, anyway, th there is commercialization being attempted on ISS, and we've talked about it a little bit before. But I appreciate Dave bringing it up, and we should probably talk about what Axiom is doing more. I still have the big question, which is: Is there enough commercial potential? in the ISS to keep it running if governments are tired of funding it. Because I get like, okay, here's a here's a company that's working on this, and that's great. But like, if it's below a certain level, like the ISS won't be able to maintain without government funding. And if the governments lose interest, so what's that level? What's the level of success of bringing commercial partners in that keeps the ISS going? And um, I don't know, but I, I do appreciate... Uh, listener Dave's links, if not his sarcasm. Uh, so I'll just say to Dave, thanks a lot, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll keep an eye on Axiom. Yeah, no, it is a really interesting way to to go about it. I think there are still like fundamental questions about the age and infrastructure of the space station that I'm not sure yeah. their answers for quite yet. Yeah, and Axiom is 
they have a separate thing that is for a, a commercial space station on its own. And I do wonder sometimes, and I don't know what all the details are about this, but I do wonder sometimes, I know I heard that the Russian space agency talked at some point about um, removing modules from the ISS and basically creating their own mini space station. Um, although I haven't heard about that in a long time now, but th- that's another question here is, right? Like, are there things, if, if, stuff needs to be decommissioned from ISS. Is there a storyline there where the old stuff gets kind of decommissioned, but other stuff comes online and, and you end up with not ISS phase two so much as just the changing face of ISS where some modules are pulled off and other modules are, are put on. Uh, It's possible, uh, but that would, again, that's going to be expensive. Mm -hmm. It's, it's cheaper to just let it, re-enter and burn up but you know i don't think we want to see that happen so we'll we'll see what happens all right it is time jason for the space SLS segment. launch system segment explaining geopolitics mechanical SLS systems segment. engineering achievements news and trivia SLS segment. sls segment Woo! yeah just a couple of quick things uh this episode not not a ton uh but uh it seems that if, I don't know how many times I've said this on the podcast, but we are getting closer to the green run. Yeah. Every day is closer to the green run, theoretically. That's, that, that's right. Uh, so currently the the team is working on a simulated launch countdown. And now the firing test is expected in late October or early November. Sometime soon. Yeah. Hooray. We will see. That's that's the update there. It's still in the future. Okay. Uh, there is a little bit of drama, though. Some SLS drama, which is always fun. So, uh, Charlie Bolden, the fo- the previous NASA administrator, uh, for six years, eight years? He was there a long time. Uh, he was giving an interview uh, and speaking, and Politico has all this. There will be a link in the show notes. Kind of... His take on what NASA could look like under a Biden-Harris administration if they win the election here in the U.S. now in seven weeks or whenever it is. And uh, it's actually a really interesting read. Like, I encourage you to go check it out because he has a lot of things that I think are – like his insight's very good because he was the boss there for so long. And he understands probably better than anybody that with administration change, direction, and the importance of things can be uh, re – (laughs) <laughs> redone right reorganized mm-hmm. he in the past he's spoken highly of the sls program it it was well underway under his command right it's not like the sls started in 2017 when trump took office this was already going on but at the time that it started it really was the only heavy lift vehicle for uh for nasa to use and to look at some of these other things like the Falcon Heavy and Starship, whenever that comes on, comes online, uh, they weren't around, right? And so NASA is looking at the the options available to them 10 years ago, 15 right. years ago, and SLS was the obvious way to go because there just weren't other options. Well, and it came out of, I mean, this was the, that muddy time when the, the um, Columbia accident happened mm-hmm. and there was the question of like, what was, they're going to decommission the space shuttle. What was going to come next? And the Bush administration had the, the constellation idea. And then the Obama administration came in and they said, no, 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 we're going to do it this different way. And it became SLS. Um, and, you know, now the Trump administration has come in and inherited SLS, but said, no, we're going to do Artemis. So uh, that keeps shifting. But yeah, this this drive to have a, a heavy lift vehicle that's human rated has been out there for a long time. And Bolden was was definitely one of the people who, who as NASA administrator, moved it along. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see now really this what this is about and what Charlie Bolden said it was is this is not him flip-flopping or getting out of NASA and now telling the truth this is very much um him saying time time has marched on and we've seen what commercial partners have done in space and it changes the way i look at sls yeah, I think that's spot on. And what struck me in reading his comments is that 
the SLS has taken so long, the world around it has totally changed, right? That now there are these options. Now there are other ways to do this. And the program has been delayed and, and delayed and delayed. And it may be that by the time it's done, it's not actually needed. And that would be a shame <laughs> for a lot of people and a lot of money, and a lot of work to go down the drain like that. But I think he's right to a degree that the world that we're in now is, in terms of uh, lift vehicles, is drastically different than it was then. And that NASA and its partners and Congress need to recognize that. And he thinks that they will. He thinks that it'll be clear that commercial flights, they're cheaper. NASA has to do less. They can just be a customer that they're going to see that that's, that's going to be the way to go. I mean, yeah, it's almost like applying the commercial crew idea to much heavier launches, right? That, hey, we can do it way cheaper. Uh, we can rely on their expertise. We can partner with them like NASA's done with Boeing and SpaceX. And uh, I think I think he's totally right. And I would not look at this as a, you know, he's out and now he can tell the truth or he's trying to score points right before right. Democrats take power again, potentially. I think he's just saying, look, this this is what it is. This is the situation the SLS program finds itself in. And it may be that it's not as vital to the future of American spaceflight as it would have been had it been ready a decade ago. Yeah, I think there's an element to this. That even though this story is, first off, it's in Politico, so they're going to take a political slant to it because that's the lens through which they see everything. Um, but I think maybe conflating a little bit the two the two factors, I, I feel like Bolden is really saying here, it's inevitable that SLS will go away because you can look at the trajectory here and see that at some point, the commercial heavy lift launch stuff is going to be so good and so much cheaper that that uh, we're going to fold up this program. And maybe it will have launched a couple of times, but like at some point we're going to be like, no, nah, there's no point in paying for more of these. Mm hmm because we can get we can save a lot of money by paying for this other thing instead and and that'll just happen um you know separate from his other because he was also talking about like what would happen in the in in a different administration and we've uh since this podcast started talked about one of the challenges with a lot of nasa stuff is new administrations come in and they change the direction and the issue isn't just like this administration had a bad direction and this administration had a good direction they're all different takes on it the the challenge is that you can't get anywhere if you keep changing direction and i thought the most interesting thing in in the bolden comments was him saying that he figured the artemis stuff would probably just continue on even mm -hmm. if biden is the president instead now they may they may change the drive for uh 2024 uh that might happen because that's very clearly timed to remain in the trump administration in a second term but that in general bolden felt like the um that that a potential biden administration would probably continue on with the lunar stuff that's going on and i i'm encouraged by that because i mean uh bridenstine the current NASA administrator talks a lot when he talks about artemis um, and we have a little more of that later in the show about how it's bipartisan, how how one of the things that was a little bit surprising coming out of such a politically polarized era and having a guy who is a politician named as the NASA administrator, it turns out it's sort of flipped that story a little bit. Bridenstine's used his political knowledge and his knowledge of Congress to try and position NASA as a bipartisan Yeah. Uh, effort and i think he's done a great job at that i Me mean there, there are things you can quibble about but like he's tried really hard to not make this a you know trump administration says this you know you're our enemy <laughs> and much more like i think i think he is consciously laying the groundwork so that this continues after this administration is is over even if that's 2020 instead of what he would undoubtedly prefer which is 2024 so so anyway, the Bolden comment I thought was interesting because he's sort of saying from his knowledge base on the uh, on, as somebody who is Obama's NASA administrator, he thinks that that a lot of this stuff is going to pretty much go. Obviously, there are lots of things about NASA that would change dramatically, like support for Earth science, um, but that the human spaceflight trajectory that we're on right now might continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get to more of that in our last topic today. That yeah, NASA's sort of setting up for a potential administration change saying, look, these things are in progress. We just need to keep going. Right, right, which I think is the right thing to do. But anyway, I think it is refreshing 
and 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 it's just somebody saying somebody in a position of authority uh saying the the thing that we've all been thinking which is that you know sls we may keep doing sls and there are arguments that like yeah but human rated heavy lift is not going to be ready from commercial partners uh by the time the sls is ready whenever that is um but at some point do we doubt that spacex or blue origin or somebody else will have a a vehicle that can replace sls and do we doubt that it will be cheaper I don't think anybody does. So he's right in saying, yeah, it's it'll go away. Like it's it's almost he's almost defending the SLS here in a way by saying it is a bridging technology hmm. that we have now because we want to do these things and the commercial crew stuff isn't ready, but it will be, and then this won't be needed anymore. You want to take our first break? Oh yeah, sure. Um, this episode is brought to you by Tuparev Technologies. I got an email from Tuparev Technologies. They told me that they put a lot of hard to pronounce words in this ad. Mm-hmm. just to trip me up. So thank you for that. I love a challenge. <laughs> the sensor size of a modern iPhone is 12 megapixels, and the sensor sizes of modern professional cameras max out at about 45 megapixels. The size of the largest astronomical CCD camera is 1.3 gigapixels. That's right. That's a lot of pixels. Giga giga pixels yeah at wwdc 2020 tupa revs developers were told by apple engineers no one in the industry had ever attempted to open a gigapixel image on a mobile device but tupa revs ambitions reach even further they aim to allow users of their new apps to perform real-time image processing on any modern ios device even for these large images their team is now looking for masters or phd students in the field of astronomy and physics who are not afraid of doing crazy maths or taking a deep dive into the inner workings of modern GPUs. They're going to work on fun projects like representing butterfly projection on polar coordinate layout, representation of time coordinates in astronomy images, new algorithms for lossless compression of astronomical spectral data, large image subtraction for optimal transient detection, hypothesis testing, and in photometry, and more. During these wild times, Tuparev's diverse team will be pleased to work with students around the world and collaborate with their universities for joint research projects remotely or at one of their offices. If computational astronomy is your passion, you will be welcome at Tuparev's team to help work on new astronomical tools for the 21st century for Mac, iPad, iPhone, and the web. If you want to learn more about doing research or work with Tuparev's team, go to tuparev.com slash RelayFM. That's Tuparev, T-U-P-A-R-E-V.com slash RelayFM. Thank you to Tuparev Technologies for supporting Liftoff and all of RelayFM. And yes, I pronounced photometry correctly. Good job. Yep. I was really yep. glad they challenged you and not me because I would not be good at that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 did it, but I did it. So anyway, that's pretty cool. So if you're out there and you're a listener to uh, to Liftoff, who's into that stuff, get in touch with those guys. It's very very cool. Jason, I feel like this story that we're going to talk about was just made for you. Like when this mm-hmm. broke, when mm-hmm. we knew there was going to be an announcement about Venus, it's like mm-hmm. oh, Jason's going to be excited because you have Venus has a special place in your heart. It it sure it's it's the um I don't know what the second planet in my heart. I don't know what that means. Uh, I just want to be clear, Stephen. It's like the motto of our show. Can we change the artwork on our show to just say at the bottom, it's never aliens? That would be good. <laughs> Let's just do that. It's never aliens. Um, so it's never aliens. But that said, you may have heard the news that we might have discovered signs of life on Venus. Okay. So we're going to break this down. A paper released on September 14th says that they have detected phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus. We know of two ways that phosphine can be formed. One is in very high pressure, high energy environments, like deep down in a gas giant. We've seen it in Jupiter and Saturn. Venus doesn't have those conditions. That's not going to be the answer. And the other way we know that phosphine can be created is uh, by being emitted by a living thing as it is on Earth. So... Does that mean there is life floating in the clouds on Venus? Well, Venus is famous for being an inhospitable place. We've stopped looking for life on Venus in many ways because we discovered what actually life is like, not life is like, on the surface of Venus. Um, We're very surface-oriented. We live on the surface. We stand on the ground. The surface of Venus is very bad. It It is hot enough to melt lead. It has the pressure like you're a mile under the ocean. It's very bad. However... And we have talked about this here before, tantalizing. Up in the clouds 
up in the upper atmosphere of Venus, you can get to a level where, other than the clouds themselves, because they're made of sulfuric acid, it's bad. Um, it's actually pretty nice. Uh, you go high enough up and you end up with one atmospheric pressure, so basically Earth atmospheric pressure. And the temperature at that point, you'd think, oh, well, Venus is so hot, you, you know, just because it's one atmosphere, it's not going to be. No, the temperature is actually like a summer day. It's like 100 degrees, 40 C. Um, so could there be little floaty life guys <laughs> floating around in <laughs> Venus's atmosphere? Sure. Yeah. Like, sure, there could. We don't know how and how they would have gotten there and where they mm -hmm. came from. And did they did they evolve there or did they evolve on the ground at an earlier time when Venus was more hospitable to life, but all that remains is life in the in the uh, atmosphere? Possibly. It's certainly possible, but it's never aliens. <laughs> like it says in the art at the bottom of this podcast, it doesn't actually do that yet. <laughs> they changed the art while we were talking. Eventually, it might be aliens, but it's a, con a convenient warning to keep us all honest, right? Don't get too excited. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and we don't need that level of claim to be excited about this, because if they've really spotted phosphine gas in the Venusian atmosphere, it's a big deal. And I should say that's a big if. There is some skepticism about this finding. It will need to be checked and rechecked. Uh, because it's un, you know, it, there's not 100% confidence that they actually saw it. They they are very confident. Other scientists are like, yeah, well, we'll see. This is a, you know, we need to make sure that that's what we're seeing here because we're we are seeing a very specific chemical in uh, the atmosphere of a planet that's far away. Uh, so so we have to do that. But if it's there, this is the exciting part. If it's there, it's there by some process that we don't understand. Right. And that's where all great science starts. Mm -hmm. we, we discover something that doesn't make sense based on what we know, and we have to figure it out. So what, what comes next? I mean, uh, we have this po probable or possible finding of this gas. We know that normally it shows up, or everywhere we know it has shown up, there's life. Maybe that's true at venus maybe it's not uh lots of questions so so what just what comes next man what's the how do we go further in this exploration well, i want you to think back to when you were but a lad 1996 i was 10 clinton was president cnn called up william shatner to ask him about life on other planets true story what are you doing cnn he's not actually <laughs> a spaceman come on he's just a, an actor from canada um they, there was a scientific claim that a meteorite found in, I think, Antarctica uh, was, uh, and, and shown, because this happens, it, it was from Mars, so it had been hit off of Mars at some point and drifted through space and eventually landed on Earth. Believe it or not, that actually does happen. And it showed evidence of bacterial life when they, when they looked at it. And they said, aha, in ancient Mars, there was bacterial life. Well, it, pro it probably didn't, like <laughs> right? Like, that was... Uh, studied as this finding will be studied and found to not be the case. However, that moment was huge and created a lot of interest, a lot of momentum, a lot of enthusiasm about searching for the building blocks of life on Mars, most especially searching for water. And that created a context that has justified and sold pretty much every Mars exploration program that has happened in the intervening 24 years. Um, it, you know, this is, this has led to, you, you can't see it cause it's a podcast, but I'm gesturing at all the things that are happening on Mars right now. Like this has led to all of this stuff. It, it, it is, you know, I really believe the greatest PR ever for Mars exploration was this scientific claim that turned out not to be true from 1996. But it captured the popular imagination, and it gave scientists and NASA and everybody else who works in space a uh, a, a thing to hang their concept on, which is, it's perfectly valid, right? Could there be life on Mars? Could there have been? Let's look for the water. And we have learned so much about Mars in the intervening 24 years. So that's all great, even though... I sometimes roll my eyes when I see the people working on Mars missions talk about how exciting it is that they're looking for life mm -hmm. because it feels, a, I mean, I still, I feel like it's a little bit cynical that they're like, this is our mail ticket. you got to talk about life on Mars because right. just studying Mars because it's interesting is not enough, but they know, it, they know it works and it gets, it justifies uh, planetary science. So maybe, 
it's possible that this will do for Venus what that did for Mars, is my point. Um, that we may enter a period here of Venus mania. In fact, I would I would bet you that in the next 20 years, we will see um, many times the number of probes ever before sent to Venus, right? I think, that's, I think that will happen now because of this, because we've got an impetus. Unless somebody like disproves this very quickly, I think there's an impetus here to honestly... As Emily Lakdawalla said on this podcast many years ago now, like people don't pay attention to Venus, right? Like th- th- we have we have paid a lot of attention to Mars and a little bit to the outer uh, outer solar system, but Venus gets very little attention. There's only one probe around Venus right now. It's the Japanese probe Akatsuki, um, but it's got to be coming, and they're, they're already revving up. So Rocket Lab, which we mentioned earlier the small rocket launch company launching things from new zealand they are working on a venus mission it's actually kind of a lot easier to get to venus than it gets than to get to mars in a lot of ways um and rocket lab is planning a, a little mission that would include a flyby plus an orbiting probe that they could probably stick some sort of gas analyzer on which would give us some answers about this gas that we think we've seen NASA has a couple. We talked about it before the discovery program. They narrowed it down to four from which they're going to pick two mm-hmm. missions. Two of those four are Venus missions. There's Da Vinci Plus. It's like, you know, HBO Max, <laughs> Apple TV Plus, sure. Da Vinci sure. Plus. <laughs> uh, da Vinci Plus analyzes the Venusian atmosphere. And then there's Veritas, which maps Venus's surface. I am going to say, Stephen, I'm going to predict. Feeling pretty good that at least one of those Venus missions is going to be picked for the Discovery program. And I would go further and say the Da Vinci Plus that's actually looking at the atmosphere of Venus. I'm kind of feeling like uh, they got it in the bag now. (laughs) Right? Like, how would you say no to something looking closely at the atmosphere of Venus in this environment. And Jim Bridenstine did tweet something mysterious that was like, we're on it. (laughs) Ain't seen nothing yet. So I feel like they're, uh, they're going in that direction. If it didn't already include a trip to Venus, I think it definitely will now, or something that maybe doesn't get chosen for this gets uh, promoted to sort of a standalone mission. So when they pick the dragonfly mission, which is that, um, the helicopter on Titan, (laughs) they're going to do, um, so that was about that. the flip side of that was they rejected a mission called VC that was going to be uh, a Venus mission, but they did as a part of the run up there fund a bunch of the technologies for the VC mission. Um, so it's entirely possible that that could be spun out into a different mission now with some Venus priority happening, or that perhaps they would have a build a combined Venus mission out of some of the discovery program missions plus some of the tech from the VC mission. Uh, give it a little more budget. Who knows what will happen there? But definitely there are some uh, Venus... Venus groundwork has been laid, but we've never really committed to it. And it feels like that's about to happen. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Russia and the Russian space program here, because the Russian space program has sent more missions to Venus, I believe, than anybody. And they're the ones who sent the landers, which, you know, operate for a very brief moment and then are crushed and melted <laughs> yeah. on the surface of Venus. Uh, but Dmitry Rogozin, who is the head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, and noted for saying ridiculous things on Twitter, by the way, um, he, he's a loose cannon, and he referred to Venus as a Russian planet the <laughs> last week. Um, whatever, dude. <laughs> whatever. Send your stuff to Venus. Fine. Great. More stuff to Venus. But... Uh, I think what his point was is that it was Russia focused on Venus a lot and in a way that the U.S. focused on Mars. Russia really did focus on Venus. And uh, so, okay, show us what you got, Roscosmos. Um, another mission that's out there, uh, European Space Agency has a mission called Envision that is proposed. That would be an orbiter um, that would launch in 2032 and spend four years orbiting Venus. So... Um, that's a possibility. And I think that that gains a little momentum from this. And then I, of course, always mention the havoc concept, which came out a few years ago, which goes back to that one earth atmosphere layer of the clouds. One of the ways to investigate Venus and Venus's atmosphere in the long run is to build a space probe that does not orbit the planet, but instead inserts a probe that is a balloon in the atmosphere 
So instead of having a, a quadcopter that zips around on Mars or Titan, you could actually have a Venus blimp that floats around in the clouds of Venus, analyzing the Venusian atmosphere. Because its atmosphere is so thick, you can do that. That would be really cool. So maybe we'll get our Venus uh, blimps, our space balloons, at some point too. Because that would be, if the atmosphere is intriguing, one thing to do is to send a craft that goes in the atmosphere and stays in the atmosphere. That would be a great bit of exploration to have a little, uh, what's what's going on uh, in the Venus balloon today, right? That would be great. So anyway, <laughs> I, I think it's early days. It's the earliest days, but I suspect we're going to be hearing a lot about Venus missions in the next decade or two. It's exciting times, man. Really exciting times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so wild to me that Venus has had so little attention, especially from the United States, right? There were some early things you mentioned. You mentioned the Russian program, which you haven't read about. I've got a link in the show notes. It's it's absolutely wild. They just had this string of missions, uh, most of which were successful uh, at studying Venus and getting pictures back from the surface, which is very eerie. But it is, um, it is, uh, it's just wild to me that it's our, it's our next door neighbor and we just haven't paid attention. Yeah, let's get back there. Turns out we need to just be less surface-centric and think about the atmosphere instead. That's right. And then, yes, eventually we're going to you know, send people there, of course. They're going to live in a little balloon for a while. Mm-hmm. It'll be fun. It'll be cool. Just you got to wear a, some protective gear in case you go into a sulfuric acid cloud. It's not, not, I don't recommend it. You don't want to roll down the window on the Venus blimp is what we're saying. No. No. And it, I mean, the, and the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, so you're going to need... You're, you're gonna need uh, I'm fascinated by the idea that you could just stand out there. You just need a, you don't need a pressure suit. You just need um, some protection from the acid and uh, something to breathe with. But you could actually otherwise just be out there in like a jumpsuit or something, like a Teflon jumpsuit. There you go. This episode of Liftoff is also brought to you by ExpressVPN. I'm sure we have a bunch of fans of The Office out there uh, based on the, the excellent UK series. But there are other like nine other (laughs) versions of The Office internationally. And uh, they're usually not available in multiple countries, but with ExpressVPN, you can access content around the world with no GA restrictions. Because ExpressVPN lets you control where you want websites to think you're located. So if you want to see something as if you were in the UK, you set ExpressVPN to London, and all of a sudden the websites think that you're you're in London with, uh, with Mike. You can choose from nearly 100 different countries, giving you access to lots of content not available in your region. For less than $7 a month, ExpressVPN lets you access thousands of new shows and movies on a bunch of streaming services, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney+. And it couldn't be easier to use. You just fire up the app on your computer or TV, select a location, and hit connect. You may think that streaming video over a VPN is not a good idea. Uh, how could it be fast enough? Well, ExpressVPN is fast enough. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I did an t- entire stream on Twitch over ExpressVPN, and it worked just fine. So it is incredibly fast. It lets you stream from a bunch of different places. So to get the most out of your streaming services today, go to expressvpn.com liftoff. And if you go to that URL, you're getting an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Once again, that's expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Go there now to learn more, expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the show and Relay FM. All right, uh, Stephen, we promised an Artemis update. I think it's time. We, we did, and it is time. So NASA has published this updated Artemis plan. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to it. Uh, it's a website or a web page and a uh, a very fancy, very beautiful, very long PDF, which I, I read through most of it on my iPad. It's a lot of sort of boilerplate stuff, but it is laying out the current state of Artemis and the future that NASA sees for the program. And we can talk about why they're doing this maybe in a second, uh, but some highlights in the plan. Uh, is that the first mission, Artemis 1, is on track for 2021. Of course, that's an uncrewed mission, with Artemis 2 flying with the crew one year later. So that that mission, you have the Orion capsule, you have crew, you're going to go to cislunar space and back. Uh, one thing that has been added to the Artemis 2 mission that I noticed is uh, a test of Orion's ability to be flown manually. 
And so if you think about like Apollo 9, right, they had to take the command module and the right. lunar module and prove that a pilot could spin it around and dock with it and undock with it and be able to approach it safely, uh, all of that stuff. And that was even built on things during the Gemini program, right? So this is the modern version of that. They want to make sure that Orion behaves as expected. They want to gather data on what that would look like. So there'll be a test with the upper stage of the SLS. Basically, Orion will uh, separate from it and then turn around and come back and, and not dock with it, but get, you know, fly in station with it and uh, making sure that all that works uh, as expected. Uh, and lastly, Artemis 3 will land at the moon's southern pole. NASA's been talking about this for a really long time. I think this basically solidifies that that's the plan, although there's also been conversation recently about maybe Artemis 3, so it's easier lands kind of in parts of the moon that we know better, and maybe a later Artemis mission goes to the South Pole. But at this point, NASA's saying Artemis 3 landing on the South Pole. Um, but I want to read you part of this because there's a lot of ambiguity in how that actually happens. So this is uh, quoting from NASA. After launching on SLS, astronauts will travel 240,000 miles to lunar orbit aboard Orion, at which point they will directly board one of the new commercial human landing systems or dock with the gateway to inspect it, gather supplies, board the landing system, and then go to their expedition on the surface. <laughs> it's like, great. Gateway's here. Gateway's not here. Uh, we don't really know, but they're planning for, I guess, either... We'll either dock with Gateway or not, and it's fine. Or not. Yep. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, because the, the idea is the lander might be at Gateway or it might not be, but either way, mm -hmm. they'll connect to the lander and then they'll go down and then they'll come back up. Yeah. Uh, so in addition to these these mission updates, there's uh, some other Artemis-y Artemis things, Artemis-related things. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, which we've talked about before, and we want to go more in depth on this in a future episode. It's kind of been at the bottom of our Google Doc forever. Yeah, it's on our to-do list, for sure. But this is partnership between NASA and commercial companies to launch and then land basically scientific investigations via landers, maybe eventually rovers, on the moon. And the plan is two launches per year beginning in 2021, next year. So these... Uh, these missions by these companies, a whole bunch, I mean, it's like every space company you can think of is involved in this, it seems like. All sorts of experiments, all sorts of data gathering to, I think this will inform where Artemis 3 lands, and I think would inform their mission on the surface. And uh, there's even discussion about, well, should so, so some of these later missions, should they be return missions where we can bring lunar ice back or, or other things back to Earth to study here? We've talked about that uh, with both Mars and the OSIRIS-REx mission, right? Bringing things back uh, could be a future part of this. But CLIPS, according to this document, is going to be up and running next year with two launches a year, so every six months or so. A uh, couple other things... It would be great. Yeah, it would be great. I mean, uh, this, this, especially if we're talking about focusing on the southern pole of the moon, there's a lot of data gathering to be done there, right? It, it, the reason that's chosen is because the belief... And there is... There is evidence of this, that there is large quantities of ice near the southern pole of the moon, but being able to have scientific missions there and proving that out and giving data to feed into this mission planning would be spectacular. And uh, I'm excited about this because mainly it's going to be so varied. There's lots of different things planned, lots of different companies involved. I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch and, and learn more about our closest neighbor. Uh, a couple other things to get to mention, spacesuits. Uh, we've spoken about this before, how NASA is uh, working on a next-generation suit, uh, not only for life in the Orion capsule, but of course, when you leave the Orion capsule, uh, either at the gateway or on the lunar surface, you got to have, have all that in place. So they're modernizing, using new technology. It's not going to be what we used 50 years ago, thankfully. And then the gateway shows up here as well. NASA says the plan is to launch two modules and have them ready by 2023, the power propulsion module and the habitat module. And I, I think the reason that the, the Artemis 3 plan currently is, is wishy-washy on Gateway is because if, it, if that is 2024, Gateway is very close to that 
2023, right? And right. if Gateway slips, they still want a way to go to the moon, right? They right. don't want to get be hamstrung by, oh, well, we're all ready, but uh, the Gateway's not ready, so we can't we can't actually make the last 60 miles or whatever it may be. Reduce your dependencies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, we spoke about this a couple of months ago, but there was a, a previous Artemis sort of layout document that that's, that said even Artemis 3 and maybe even 4 skip the gateway, but as this becomes more routine, gateway kind of gains a stronger foothold in the missions, and it becomes a more important piece in, in looking at uh, especially like on the way to Mars, like, could the gateway, could its infrastructure and its platform be used for something to get to Mars? So there's lots of interesting ways gateway could go. Gateway has had just a very up and down history. It's been canceled. It's been uncanceled. Its name has changed. It's just, it's had a lot going on, but uh, I'm hopeful that this, this Artemis three mission would use it because I think there's so much to be gained by having a, a stopping point in this lunar space. And, it means that you don't necessarily have to take the the human lander with you every time, which opens up the opportunity for other launch vehicles other than SLS. Uh, See above conversation, I guess. Yeah. The Gateway will have two scientific instruments on board. So the idea is that, okay, well, humans aren't going to be there very often, right? And, and it'd be a shame to let this just sit here, and especially in cislunar space where we've been, but we don't have a sustained presence really uh, there are some, you know, satellites surrounding the moon, but as far as a scientific platform, this would be new. And so the European Space Agency has a radiation instrument package uh, to monitor radiation exposure in Gateway's orbit. So seeing what that is like in cislunar space, you know, the one thing that's unique about Gateway is because it will have a propulsion module, its position around the moon can change and its orbit can change. And so understanding how radiation could affect crew long term, because eventually we're talking about sustained presence on the moon, if not a Gateway, this is data we've got to have. And we're outside of the protection of the atmosphere that that bends a lot of the stuff around the Earth, right? The, the International Space Station, yes, radiation is higher than on the ground, but it is way lower than cislunar space is. So they need to understand that. And uh, NASA's side of this is a space weather instrument suite looking at solar particles and the solar wind created by the sun. Uh, there's lots of other studies of this, including the Parker Sun Probe looking at this. And again, understanding as we move out of low Earth orbit, what we need to to be aware of and prepare for. You know, kind of famously, the Apollo hardware, like, it really wasn't built with much of protection in terms of this, right? If there had been some sort of solar flare or some sort of issue and we were in the direct path of that, it could have been real bad <laughs> for the guys in that tin can. Mm. And that's not acceptable when you've got to be on a two-year mission just to get to Mars, let alone come back and be there. And so... All this stuff feeds into the the future trip to the red planet. It's all good. And lastly, Artemis Base Camp, sustained lunar <sighs> surface Yay. presence. Uh, Do you this get a t-shirt? So like, uh, I survived yeah, Artemis Base that'd Camp. Be, that'd be a cool shirt. Hmm. Uh, this is just a concept. NASA says work will, quote, follow later in this decade. So uh, I guess check back in another 133 episodes. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see where okay. we are with the Base Camp. All right. That's good. Liftoff 318. We'll we'll check in about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I find this funny too because they they really restrain just calling it the Moon Base, which is what everybody wants to call it. It's mm -hmm. a lunar base. It's Moon Base. Eh, it's Artemis Base Camp. Yeah, but that's that's the next step, right? Is they want you, you want people in the uh, in the gateway, and then ultimately you want uh, an extended surface thing because there are things you can do in the lunar surface where there's a little bit of gravity, that would be, as opposed to just sort of like landing and taking a walk and then and then leaving, if you could actually put something down there and have extended time on the on the moon, that would be pretty cool. So, um, yeah. So you we mentioned earlier about the sort of like uh, prepping for um, whatever is to come and whichever party controls the White House. Um, do you have more about that? Yeah, I just, I mean, I think it's it's partially what we said earlier that 
NASA is building the case for itself. And again, like to Brian Stein's credit, he knows how this works. And I think you and I have both been impressed with his performance much more so than we thought we would be, given his background. I think he's done a, actually a pretty good job as administrator on the mo- on, for most things. But I think that he understands that if there's a leadership change in 2024, whether the White House or the Senate, right, because this also has everything to do with budgeting, which is Congress's purview, that they need to show that we are on this path, and if you change something, if you change our mission again— like we've done a lot of work and we're already pretty far down this road and you don't need to do that. You need to let us continue on this on this path. And something in that Politico piece that Bolden said was he actually thinks that for the most part, if Biden wins, that NASA's priorities probably wouldn't change that much from where it is now, except for the restoration of earth sciences and STEM stuff, which NASA's tried to... Or, Trump's White House has tried to get out of the NASA budget and Congress always puts it back in, but I don't think NASA, you know, I don't think Trump's real happy about that. So I think other than that, back and forth, Bolden seems to think that for the most part, Artemis would continue. Maybe the 2024 push would be backed off a little bit because that is really aggressive. And and here, you know, pretty close to the end of 2020, like that's not much time. So that may... Uh, that may be a part of this. Um, but I also think it's Brian Stein saying uh, sort of in between the lines, and I think it gives him a framework to talk about funding, that unless we get these budget increases that we've asked for in the areas we've asked for, that this is going to take longer than than the goal set out by mm-hmm. uh, Trump and Pence. And what's interesting is there, that's not in this release. It's not in that PDF, really. But it lays a roadmap out for Brian Stein to say, look, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. But you have to fund this if you really want it to happen. And I think that's pretty smart in a year where you're you're getting ready potentially to have a change in leadership. Say, look, like catching you up, this is where we are. And yeah, maybe part of it was put in by your predecessor, but we believe that we can do this you know, will you help us do it? And I think that's a good way to go. Yeah, and we've got we've got both houses of Congress behind this, which means it's bipartisan, mm-hmm. and we just want to keep this rolling. And you know, I think I this is a this is a very responsible thing to do. And again, the pragmatism of Bridenstine really can't be overstated. I feel like he is a smart guy, and we when when he got nominated, we're like, oh brother, it's just this random politician from Oklahoma, but. He seems not only politically savvy, but I think aware of the mission of the space agency. And so like in an administration that probably doesn't have a lot of people who are looking out at the future, he's aware that the NASA administrator, that this is a huge ship. It does not turn uh, quickly and that there is definitely a chance that they're all going to be out of there in January. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, it's his responsibility. And I think he really does believe this as the NASA administrator to take care of NASA and make sure that the stuff, obviously you want the projects you've worked on to continue after you're gone and you want to set them up for success. But I think there's also a feeling of responsibility, like to not lose momentum. And if he's not there next year, that at least he's able to hand off to whoever follows him, um, the, all of the work that's been done in progress and try to make it as easy as possible. So, um, you know, I'm sure that if he were to talk to people at the White House, they'd be like, no, 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 we're going to win. Don't worry about it. But it's like, mm. but realistically, like there is always a chance that you won't. And mm-hmm. polls, the polls aside, right, there's always a chance that you won't. And you serve your agency well to keep that in mind. So um, and we'll see what happens. They may just go full steam ahead in uh, in 2021 or there may be changes. But uh, it does sound like this project is going to continue uh, regardless. Now that could change, but again, I feel like the Charlie Bolden, Charlie Bolden is involved in the Biden campaign, but like, he's not going to be back as NASA administrator or anything like no. that. But I feel like he has enough of a pulse that when he says, it seems like this is going to keep going on, that that's actually the case. Yeah. It's, it's what's interesting this time around, as opposed to 2016, is it feels like NASA's vision whether we agree with it or not, or whether you think components of it are the right call or not, <clears throat> SLS, <clears throat> it is way more concrete than it was when 
Trump took over, right? The Obama administration had the the path, you know, pathway to Mars or whatever it was called, but a lot of that was uh, I don't want to say theoretical, but very immature at that point. And in the four years that under Brian Stein so far, they have made real progress in a lot of these areas. Yes, stuff's behind, and stuff's over budget, but even I think the the staunchest opponents of Artemis and the SLS in particular really can't argue that they've made concrete progress in four years. And I think that puts NASA in a better place in a new administration to say, look, last time, you know, <laughs> we had a change of hands. It was basically just a plan and some research. But now, like, we have a finished rocket. We have a finished capsule. They're in their final stages of testing. We are working on the all these other components. That I think it's much harder to cancel something or to change something when it's real things, right? When it's theoretical or when it's in the planning stages, you can just change direction basically by just sending a memo. But you can't really do that as easily a couple billion dollars into a new rocket and you have one strapped to a test stand and like you know it's 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 a different thing sls segment yeah it's everywhere i'm sorry it's it's bled over to everything um it and is, I think it's that, all connected and i think it is i think that's what brian stein is trying to get at this like this stuff is real and we are in progress and changing the goal now would be way more damaging than it was you know when we did it four years ago and to an extent he's right i, I think he is yeah Oh, space and politics, man. You can't separate them. I'm sorry. I wish we could, but it's hard to do. It's all connected. It's a, it's a different show. All right. Well, that would be an upgrade. <sighs> I'm not familiar with that show. Jason, we have something very <laughs> special coming. Our next episode. Do you want to do a little teaser? Yes. Scheduled to appear. Uh, you know, the future is promised to no one, but the plan right now is that our next episode in October, October 6th, it's going to be a very special episode because it's my birthday happy birthday and also because we hope to have with us a very special guest friend of the show and previous liftoff guest katie mack returning to talk about her book which is about all the very entertaining ways that the universe can come to an end Mm -hmm. we'll talk some dark energy we'll just rip this whole podcast into little tiny pieces using dark energy (laughs) And uh, Katie's great. She's been on a bunch of incomparable podcasts and stuff. So it's fun to, yeah. I, I asked her if she would, I, I said, I assume that you're doing this media blitz for your book. And she said, it will be nice to talk to people I actually know. <laughs> so <laughs> that's hopefully October 6th. We'll, we'll have Katie on to that's, talk about the That's fantastic. The yeah. The, the book is great. Uh, I'm reading it now. I'm going to put a link to the book in the show notes. I, I would, I would throw this out there as homework. It's a book club. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Read Katie Mack's book and then come back and we'll talk to her about some of the scenarios that are in there. And yeah. don't worry, because if the uh, if they, that one scenario happens, you'll never notice that the world will just be over. <laughs> <laughs> and and her writing is, so, I mean, we're going to get into this. Oh, her, her writing is so good. Yeah. You, you think yeah. about, oh my gosh, how could I digest this? She does a really good job at, at making she, it a good read. It is one of the best popular science books I've read, and I've read a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And it's because she's funny which is great. She's got a really good kind of pop culture verse that every chapter starts with a quote from a book. I like, so like she's, she's, she's smart, obviously, but she's funny. Um, she's, uh, her, her writing is accessible. And then there are moments that I appreciate it. And we'll, again, yes, we'll talk about it, but there are moments where there is this simplified version of science that has become popular mm-hmm. and she tells it. And then she says, okay, you're saying to yourself that can't be right. And it's not. Yeah. So you're just going to have to trust me since we don't we're not sharing high level math right now that although that's not really what happens it's the closest approximation to what happens. And I really loved that because I read some of these books and I'm like virtual particles annihilating each other. Yeah, that 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 doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. And in her book she's like it's not. <laughs> yeah. But it's close enough. like Hawking radiation doesn't work this way, but like do you want to do this high level math i do not okay then let's just agree it's kind of like this i love that about it so it's it's she's she gets real at a few points about like when when simplification happens she doesn't hide it she's like this is simplified this isn't real so it's a super accessible book uh it is the end of everything right that's the name of it mm-hmm. 
So people, we'll put a link in the show notes. You should, uh, you should check it out. The end of everything, astrophysically speaking, we should say. Yeah. So Katie Mac in two weeks. That'll be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I will bring cake or something for my birthday. But uh, other than that, I think we are at the end. I think so. So if you want to find links to stories we spoke about, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 133. Those notes are also in your podcast app probably. So you can just uh, view them there. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Donate to the life-saving mission of finding cures and saving children. It's what St. Jude does every day by going to stjude.org slash relay. Thank you so much to everyone who's been involved. But there's still time to give, so go, go there today. You can find Jason out on the internet. He's wandering around on Twitter. He's Jay Snell over there. Steven, where are you? I lo- I'm wandering. I don't know where. Uh, oh, hi. Hey. Sorry. You're back. I, I was wandering the internet there. I missed I missed some of it. You're in the canyon of retweets. Are we still doing yeah. liftoff? Yeah. So I'm still here. I'm still doing the outro. Okay. It takes a long time. Yeah, I'll say. Especially when you're interrupted. Yeah. <sighs> so anyways, you can find us on Twitter. We're over there. Uh, be sure to check out Katie Mack's book. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. <laughs>